Hi, my name is Robert McMahon. I'm the Connection Director here at Covenant Church, and I'm thrilled that you're listening. If you're checking us out for the first time, welcome. We're so glad that you're here, and I'd like to take this chance to invite you to let us know that you're tuning in today. We'd love nothing more than to help you start building meaningful relationships and to join you on the journey of faith. Just go to bgcovenant.org connect and let us know how we can be in touch. With that said, let's dive in and listen together to this week's message. Last week, I invited you into Upstream Life. We're in this new sermon series called Smaller, Slower, Lesser, Lower. Bit of a mouthful, but it's for a purpose. And last week, we invited you into Upstream Life, which is explaining this beautiful steelhead trout that is mounted to the stage. It's why we've nailed it to the stage. It will remind us throughout the entirety of the series that the whole point of this is God has called us into another way of being, that while the mainstream flows one way, we have been invited to swim against the current as we follow Christ. So if you want a summary of last week, it's going to be hard to do. You can go back and listen to it on our website. You can find that, watch that. I would encourage you to catch up. We have devotionals that come out every Monday through uh, Saturday that go along with this. So if you're on Instagram or Facebook, you should be seeing those. Populate your feed or whatever it might be called. If you say, I don't want to be on social media, that is garbage. I hate social media. That's fantastic. Email me, kyle at bgcovenant.org, and I will send you the entire month's devotionals. I'll just send them to you in a PDF, and you'll just have it in your email, and you can do it however you want to do it. So that's there for you. To summarize last week, I would say this. John Shedd once said, a ship, is, a ship in harbor is safe, but that is not what ships were built for. That was last week. You have been invited, you've been called into a life that may not always feel safe, but it is what you've been called to, it's what you've been created for. And so this week, I invite you into those waters again, and we are going to talk about the first of these four words that are on your screen. We're going to talk about what does it mean to be smaller? What does it mean to live smaller, to become smaller, to see ourselves as smaller? And smaller, as you might know, is not really in our national DNA. This is not a very American idea. I don't see, I don't see a lot of advertisements for uh, smaller anything. Our cars are bigger than they've ever been. Trucks are getting bigger. It's football season. Stadiums are bigger. Even the nice, big 100,000-seat stadiums, they're always renovating, adding more seats. Nicer things are getting bigger and bigger. There's a a high school stadium that opened in Texas a couple years ago. 18,000 seats. It cost $80 million for high school kids to play football. Bigger. We love bigger. Homes are bigger. McMansions on every corner. Cul-de-sacs as far as the eye can see. And here's the funny thing. We have smaller families than we've had in generations, and yet the houses keep getting bigger. And so throw that graphic up there, and you will see the uh, top line up into the right that has 1,058 at the end of it. That line represents the average amount of square footage that an American currently has at home, which is, as you can see, has more than doubled from um, what it was just 30, 40 years ago. And so what we are seeing is that as families get smaller, our houses keep getting bigger and we have more and more space. And some of you are here going, I don't think that's true because I have four children under my house and we have 2,000 square feet. So the math has to be off. So what I need you to do is point at the nearest empty nester and be like, you guys are ruining the curve because, okay, that's math. So what happens is we have these bigger and bigger spaces and fewer and fewer people in them and they start to feel empty. So naturally we go and we fill them with stuff. Not just any stuff, bigger stuff. So we have bigger couches. Have you seen how big couches have gotten? Couches are big. We have bigger couches, bigger kitchen islands. Who needs more? Bigger, bigger, more, bigger. Bigger televisions, you say. Bigger televisions are out there for you. If you want a big TV, you can get a big TV. You can leave right now if you hurry and get to Walmart before they sell out of big TVs. Everybody during the pandemic, everybody I know, it seems, supersized their TV. I supersized my TV during 
the COVID pandemic, which um, we'd like to pretend is over. Maybe it's, let's just pretend. Did you know that uh, in 1970, 1971, when, when this church was planted 50 years ago, you could get a brand new 21-inch square tubey television, color, mind you, for $500. That's pretty good, $500, except when you factor in inflation and what that is today, $1971 to $2021, it actually, a 21-inch television would have run you the equivalent of $3,300. You can literally walk out of here, go to Walmart right now, and for $520-21, you can get that 70-inch screen that you've been looking at. It's so crisp. It's so beautiful. I feel like I'm in the game. It's undeniable. How did I live without this for so long? And then strangely, within a day or two, I'm vaguely unsatisfied with this television. Television isn't doing it for me anymore. So we chase bigger paychecks, bigger career moves, so we can take bigger Instagram-worthy vacations away from our bigger homes and bigger couches and bigger TVs. We go on vacation, and we have to get good pictures of our vacation, don't we? We find ourselves on vacation, and when, when we're on the beach, and, and we look at each other, and we say, what do we do, honey? And she says, purse your lips a little bit. No, look, a little to the left. The sun's just right. Hold that pose. And 73 selfies later, they got the perfect envy-inducing pose for social media. Because we need bigger. We need more. I think we find ourselves in the more, better, different trap. Calling it the more, better, different trap. It is the trap of modern life. Take TVs, for, for instance. If you think, oh, you know, TVs, what do you mean by more, better, different? I mean this. Once you get that 70-inch television, ultra-high definition, and you get it in your house, you go, this is great. Why don't we have one of these in every room? And you go, I don't even have a television in the shower. I need more, more televisions. Give me more televisions. So you get more televisions, and then you have multiple 70-inch televisions in your home, and you go, this is incredible. I never have to stop watching. But then you feel this emptiness inside of you start to grow, and you realize that what you need is better televisions. Then my neighbors have more televisions. I need better 4K TV, 8K TV, 96K TV, to which you might say they don't even make shows in 96K. You don't even know what 96K is. And you go, it doesn't matter. It's exclusive and I have it and it's better. So now you have 96K TVs in your living room and in your bathroom and in your shower. And you're, you, you're, you're pretty excited about this, but pretty soon you realize that's not all that satisfying. And so what you need, not just more, not just better, but you need different Give me that television that no one else has. And so you go and you find it. There it is, gleaming on the showroom floor. It's not just 70 inches. It's not just 96K, but it's curved. Whoa. You've seen the curved television? I don't understand why it's curved. But it's curved, and no one else has a curved TV. And it's backlit because the wall behind the TV is cooler if it's blue. And so, you, okay, I got a backlit, curved, 70-inch, 96K television. It's incredible. And I got them everywhere. I put one in the crawl space just in case. If, you know, maybe the plumbing's going bad, but the game is on. I can do both at the same time. It's incredible. I got more, better, different. And then what? I got nothing left to chase. So when that emptiness returns and you go, none of this mattered, the more, better, different mattered, what you get at the end of that is what Carrie Newhoff would call despair. It is the trap of more, better, different despair. And as we chase all the things that make modern life modern life, what we end up with is as much as we want to chase more of anything and then better of something and then different of another thing, at the end of that vacation, at the end of that purchase, at the end of that moment, at the end of that status, what we still get is emptiness and despair. The more better different despair 
trap is why we spend life climbing a career ladder only to get off at the end and realize it was more of a hamster wheel because we're still where we started. We have crushing consumer debt. Pornography is more pervasive and pernicious than it has ever been because more and better and different has infected us as a people. I actually think we were designed to chase smaller. I'm not talking about smaller possessions. Don't go smash your television. It's not the idea. Not smaller possessions or careers or vacation. Take your vacation. I think these are all metaphors for what's happening inside of us. Our possessions and our vacations and our careers and our ambitions and our status-seeking, all of that is a, a metaphor for what's really happening inside of us. We were designed, I believe, to pursue smaller selves and, and to pursue smallness in how we relate to the world. You might call this humility. I just keep saying smaller. When you get a gift, a random gift, you didn't, you know, on your birthday, you're supposed to get gifts. You're entitled to those gifts. So you feel pretty good about those gifts. But when you get a gift and you didn't see it coming, that makes me feel, I say, that makes me feel small. I was not ready for that. I'm not, I didn't know that was coming. I didn't earn that and you gifted me anyway. Someone walked up to me this morning and gave me a gift. I didn't see it coming. Someone in their free time, in their free week, with their money, thought of me and thought to buy me something and then bring it to me on a Sunday morning, and I felt smaller. I was humbled. I felt smaller. When you consider yourself with, uh, in relationship to the God of the universe, you feel smaller. When you consider that grace abounds in this room and that we deserve none of it, you feel smaller. This humility that we're aiming for is really the smaller of life. And I don't want you to get this wrong. When we talk about smaller and lower and lesser and lower, smaller, slower, lesser, and lower, these things seem like the kind of things that, well, it seems like you're calling us in to go cower in the corner a little bit. Like the world is moving bigger and faster and stronger and greater, and you're asking us to something else. This is not an invitation to passivity, but it's a new and profound kind of action and intention that drives us into the place where Christ would have us. So instead of chasing bigger and stronger, we seek smaller and more vulnerable in our everyday existence. Let's hear it from Jesus. In Mark chapter 9, Scripture says they came to Capernaum. When he, Jesus, was safe at home, he asked them, what were you discussing on the road? The silence was deafening. They had been arguing with one another over who among them was the greatest. And so he sat down and he summoned the twelve. So you want first place, Jesus asked them. Then take the last place. Be the servant of all. And so he put a child in the middle of the room, and then cradling the little one in his arms, he said, whoever embraces one of these children, as I do, embraces me, and far more than me, the God who sent me. And let me set the scene here. Remember, this is a walking culture. These guys walk everywhere. So they've been out ministering, and they're walking back to Capernaum, their, the kind of home base of their ministry. And so as they go from one town to another, as they go from one place of ministry to another, inevitably, like you would on a road trip, just conversations start popping up. And so there's Jesus with maybe 12 or maybe 15 or maybe 20, and they're following him on the road. And little pockets of twos and threes and fours start to build. And, and the discussion turns into who is the greatest among us? And what they do is collectively, they're all pulling out their little rulers and measuring their righteousness one against the other, trying to figure out who, who wins in this argument. So Jesus gets home and he says, hey, what were you guys talking about back there? And they're too embarrassed to say what we see is their silence. And I don't know if they, anybody had told them yet, but he's Jesus, so he knew. You know, he's like, oh, well, guys, you were asking about who was the greatest. 
So you can see Jesus' countenance almost as you read the story is, is Jesus sort of has this deep sigh of like, oh gosh. All right, guys, let's do this again. Everybody gather around. And he calls them around and he sighs really deeply and he goes, we've been through this. It's not new for us in 2021 to be invited to smaller Jesus was dealing with this with his disciples. We deal with it every single day. Status brings power and prestige and all of the privileges that come with it. It always has. Friend of Covenant, BGSU professor Brandon Warmke wrote a book uh, last year or two, and it's called Moral Grandstanding. And the basic foundation of the book is that there is a, a human psychological core need and drive for status. Humans, one of the core things we need, you can name four or five things that every human being needs to survive. And one of those things psychologists have found is, is the drive for status. Human beings are like wired up to want more of it. So Jesus is addressing a universal truth that was true then and it is true now, and that is status seduces, and it always has. Social media has weaponized this in us, and so we see it really clearly on social media. It's the easiest place to see people preening and showing off, and the peacock feathers goes up, and, and you go, okay, I see what's happening here. But it isn't just there, and it's all through life, and it isn't just because social media. See, we don't write it off and be like, well, it's because of Facebook that status has become a thing. It's always been a thing. Why do you think elementary school children push each other out of the way so that one can be the line leader? This happens. Children fight to be the line leader in elementary school. And he pushed me, and no, she started it. And someone gets to the front, and they puff out their little chest. What are the benefits of being the line leader? There are no benefits to being line leader. It's simply a status play. I was the line leader. What did you get for that? Nothing, but I led the line. Awesome. What's wrong with the kid in the back? He's the caboose. And he's just like, you know. It's just status. Adults fight for promotions. Grown men and some women, I will not leave you out, women, you have gotten involved in this more in recent years. We applaud your willingness to go knee-deep into the wars of our modern society. Grown men and women chase the title and are thinking about right now the title of fantasy football champion. You're sitting there wondering if the person you put in your starting lineup is injured. Are they injured? Did I put him out? I wonder if I did. I wonder if that trade will go through. I, does he have COVID? I heard he has COVID. I'll take him out. And you're thinking about this hours a week going, I have to win my fantasy football championship, which is another way of saying I have to be the best of all of my friends at choosing fake sports teams. To what benefit? It's just status. So when I walk in the room next year, all of my friends will know I was better at choosing fake sports teams than them. And you puff out your line as the line leader. You puff out your chest and you feel good about your life. With humanity, we want titles. We want trophies. We want adulation. We want all of that. We want power and status and bigger reputations and better access and privilege. We want all that it brings in any little angle and place in life we can get it. We aim for it. And it is the lie of the mainstream world that any of that status will lead to satisfaction because it won't. Jesus tells them and he tells us the way of the world is rubbish. If you think that arguing about who is the greatest is going to lead you to some great place, you're wrong. Jesus knows that subverting status, undermining status, and serving others is the actual path to life. That's the upstream life. As the world chases more status, as the world is more interested in what others think, Jesus says, swim the other direction. Figure out what it means to be the servant of all. 
Not as false humility or misdirection. He says, you want first place, take last. And you can kind of see the quizzical look they might have had on their face, like, well, what does that mean? So he doesn't even skip a beat. He just keeps going. If you want first place, take the last, be the servant of all. That's what it means. Take on sacrificial smallness. The Apostle Paul wrote something around a quarter of your New Testament. So you flip through your New Testament, and you go, there's a lot of books by this guy named Paul. A quarter of your New Testament is written by the same guy. When he was a, a persecutor of Christians before he decided to follow Jesus, he was called Saul. The name meant inquired of God, inquired of God. He was a, a fierce defender of the old rule, and he was fiercely chasing down those who were not following the God of Israel. And yet he has this interaction with Jesus And when the scales fall off and he realizes that he has a whole other life in front of him, that the the persecution of Christians is not what was actually his calling, but he is to be the leader of Christians. He has this transformation. And the one they called Saul, the inquirer of God, decides to go by the name of Paul. He went from his Hebrew name to a Roman name. As he's going out to be a missionary in the Roman Empire, he takes on a Roman name. And what is the Roman name Paulus? What does Paul mean? In Latin, Paul means small. Small becomes the leader of the church. Small becomes the planter and extender of the kingdom. Small becomes the most read writer in the history of humanity. Consider that. A guy named Small leads us in faith. It's like God knew that there was a transformation that needed to take place. And so when Saul became Paul, maybe we should pay attention to the transformation that God has called him into transformational smallness. And I would actually argue that he is calling us into transformational smallness as well. We've said this before, but I'll say it again. In a world where the powerful use people to lift themselves up, we are called to serve, to be people who use power to lift others up. The world is nothing but a hundred leverage points. And if we are leveraging people to grow our power, shame on us. If we are leveraging whatever power we might have to serve people, that is the calling of Christ. When we pursue bigness, what we're ultimately after is an expanded self. whether it's our Instagram stories or our perfectly manicured lawns or our better vacations or our bigger and curvier enhanced televisions. We are chasing mainstream status and bigness with our lives. We are pursuing ourselves. We are pursuing worthiness in ourselves, which is to say we are worshiping ourselves. And it is natural and it is normal and it is mainstream behavior, but you have been called to something better. You have been called to an upstream life And the pursuit of smallness, of Christ-like humility and meekness, is the upstream countercultural plan. But don't misunderstand when we say meekness. Again, this is not cowering in the corner. This is not small of faith. This is not someone without a voice. Tozer explains it this way. The meek man, the meek man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson. 
but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and as helpless as God has declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. He knows well that the world will never see him as God sees him. And he has stopped caring. Who do you care about the way they see you? Who, when they were going to walk into your home, are you worried about whether things are put in the right spot? Who, when they see what you drive, are you worried that maybe you're not driving the right thing? Who is it that you care what the world thinks? Who in the world, why do we care? Tozer says the man who has found this level of humility, the man, the woman, she doesn't care what her neighbor thinks anymore. She cares what God thinks. She doesn't care what social media thinks. She cares what God thinks. She doesn't care what her friend group thinks. She cares what God thinks. She doesn't care what the church gossip thinks. She cares what God thinks. She knows well that the world will never see her as God sees her, a princess in the kingdom, and she has stopped caring. So we take the last place. Jesus doesn't say take the second place. Note this. Jesus doesn't go line leader. No, just go one back. Jesus said take the last place because you know why? The third place still lords it over the fourth place and the fourth place is entitled to more than the fifth place. So Jesus says let's get rid of the whole place thing and just get to the end because you cannot seek to live with others first until you're able to put yourself last. If you leave with nothing else today, you cannot seek to live with others first until you put yourself last. Jesus does not struggle to illustrate this for us. He puts a child in the middle of the room and then he picks her up and he cradles her. And what is the picture he's giving us? That the king of kings and the creator of the universe is taking the time and the energy to see her. You ever feel overlooked in the world? Feel like your status is this big and maybe no one even sees you. Jesus says, I see you. I see you right where you are. I see you right where I've put you and you're right where you belong. So he takes her, and he sees her, and he loves her, and he cradles her, and he blesses her. And this is in a culture where they don't worship children like we do. There's no travel soccer, okay? Your parents are like, oh, man, kids are exhausting. Their travel soccer was when they're big enough to get in the fields, we're going to get them in the fields. That was their view on children. Children were an afterthought. They were a beloved afterthought, but they were an afterthought. And they were energy suckers. And until they were old enough to earn their keep and work in the field or work in the home or help bake bread or whatever it was, until then, they were energy suckers. And Jesus takes one of these energy suckers and he puts it in the middle of the room and he goes, this is what it looks like. Not a single one of the disciples, as they argued on the road about who was the greatest, would have ever suggested a child. And Jesus says, you have to be willing to put yourself below that standing. You have to be willing to embrace and cradle and be like a child. You have to get that small just to see how big and beautiful and wonderful the kingdom is. You cannot see it unless you get to this size. The, Matthew, the disciple, he has a different angle on it. Let's read his. In Matthew 18, he writes this way. At the time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who then is the greatest in the kingdom? And he called a little child to him, and he placed the child 
among them. And he said, quoting Jesus, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. He calls them to radical smallness, to radical transformation. Unless you change and become like little children, he says, you'll never figure it out. The kingdom is inaccessible unless you can figure out the smallness first. Smallness is the path to greatness. So if you want to be greater, become smaller. Jesus is saying, find vulnerability, find humility. That's where you find me. You don't climb the ladder to Jesus. Jesus descended the ladder to us. And if you are feeling vulnerable in this place, if you are feeling like this level of smallness is a lot of vulnerability, the beautiful part of the gospel of Jesus is that when we are at our most vulnerable in front of Him, we are actually and ironically the most secure we've ever been. So how do we start living the upstream journey? How do we do the countercultural life? What is the life that Jesus invites us into? Or asked another way, how do we shake off the more, better, different trap? How do we avoid that despair that comes with falling into the trap? And the answer is it's about getting smaller. It's about finding vulnerability and humility. And so there's three things we're going to go through. First is embrace your affliction. We're going to embrace affliction, recognize gifts, and rediscover grace. But first, embrace your affliction. This does not sound like fun at all. I come to church to be encouraged. You're telling me to embrace pain. We are quick to chase comfort in our world, aren't we? And we will do whatever it takes to avoid pain. We have multiple types of pain relievers in our medicine cabinets. One is for reducing inflammation. That will lessen the pain. The other, when that won't work, is I just take the one that gets rid of the brain receptor and cuts it off so I just don't feel the pain. The pain's still there. I just don't feel it. Get rid of the pain. Give me comfort. And yet affliction leads us to smaller. Affliction leads us to deep humility. I would challenge you to think of the most humble people that you know. And some of you are in affliction right now, and you're like, I don't like where this is going because I don't want to be in affliction. You're telling me to embrace my affliction. Who are the most humble people you know? Odds are they got there by going through a deep valley of suffering. The most humble people I know got there through a deep valley of suffering because it is affliction that brings us low. It's affliction that shows us that we aren't in control. It's affliction that says it doesn't matter what you've done or what your status is. It doesn't matter. Cancer doesn't care how often you work out. Loss doesn't select based on your levels of righteousness. Tragedy doesn't avoid high income brackets. Affliction comes irrespective of your status. And if we're paying attention, those things actually grow our humility. They actually make us smaller. They're actually beautiful gifts in the long run. And while they are terrible in the moment, while they are trials in the moment, when we get to the other side, I know people who have gone through unimaginable loss. And they would say, I would never have asked for it, but I'm so glad I went through it. When we are able to come before the Father in our affliction and put our hands out in childlike vulnerability and say, I control nothing, I need you. That's glorious beauty. That's the smallness we've been called to. Just consider that there are 8 billion souls rattling around this world right now and the God of the universe cares enough about you to be physically and really active in your life. That when you pray, He is listening. When you move, He moves ahead of you that the God of the universe doesn't see you as one of eight billion. He sees you as his child. 
And if that doesn't make you feel small and humble and vulnerable and utterly reliant, I don't know what will. Second thing, we recognize our gifts. When we're in church, often when we talk about your gifts, we mean like how you can serve other people. What's your skills? What are your gifts? That's not this. Recognize where gifts are showing up in your life. Or maybe to say it another way, allow yourself to be served. Gifts are great. They lead us to be smaller. Gifts lead us to humility because they are unearned blessings. Because when we have gifts show up in our life, like I had this morning, I go, I didn't earn this. You're just loving me for the sake of loving me, and I feel smaller because gifts have a way of doing that to us. When Nick walked in here in the first service, I saw on his face, he's like, what is this, and why are people clapping? And we said, it's for you, and you could just kind of see his soul go, oh, man, that feels good. We think we want to get puffed up, and what we really desire in the depth of our souls is we want to be small and vulnerable in the presence of God, and gifts have a way of making it happen. We're going to go way deeper into this on October 10th when we talk about lower. We talk about what it means to be served because we have so much pride in our culture that we don't like to be served. We'd rather serve someone than be served. It's hard to accept someone else's service, so we're not going to go too into that. But I will say this, when my wife and I were missionaries, this is how gifts work. We were finishing our term as missionaries, and we were finishing not because we wanted to come home, but because our visa expired, and they would refuse to uh, renew it. So we're in South Africa, we're kind of running out of money, and now we're running out of legal status in the country. Our status is gone. So we're scrambling. We have to get a flight out of South Africa, and then we have to have somewhere to show up to in America, and we have someone reach out who loves us, and they said, here's what I'd like to do. I'm going to buy your flights, so don't stress about that. I know you're probably low on money. You didn't see this coming. I'm buying your flights. Tell me what it costs. I don't know if you know this, but a, a, a flight the week of from South Africa to America is not cheap. So probably $3,400 shows up in our account and we're able to buy flights. And we land in New York City and we have friends in New York City and they say, you know what, you've been through a lot and it's been a heavy year and you've done a lot of serving and it's time for us to serve you. So you're going to stay with us for the week. And we said, no, no, it's fine. It's fine because we're bad at being served. No, 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 no. We're okay. It's fine. We're not hungry and we're, you know, emaciated and poor and we have no food and no money. And they're like, come with us. So for a week, our friends in New York City, they take us to restaurants we could never have afforded of course they pay for everything. We went to three Broadway shows that week, and we could afford zero. And they said, we think you need a little bit more. Come with us again. Come with us again. We got you. Let me show you. It was amazing. And it was so humbling because we couldn't pay him back. There was no way. We had nothing to our name, and they were lavishing goodness on us. We didn't earn it. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't pay it back, and it made us feel small. Sounds like another profound part of life, which is why the third one is rediscovering grace. Mainstream world prizes self-sufficiency, and grace leads us back to smaller and profound humility. The radical gift of mercy and grace, not just the overarching mercy and grace, which is real and needed, but the daily grace. You need God's grace to take your next breath Grace. Exhale, grace. Inhale, grace. You have to rediscover the grace of God to feel the smallness of your soul. Because you didn't earn it. 
and you didn't deserve it, and you can't pay it back. And so when you rediscover daily grace, and you understand that God has a plan for you, that He saved you for a reason, that He wants you here, and He has a purpose for your life, and you know that every breath He gives you is a gift of unearned grace, it begins to make you feel smaller and more humble and more motivated to live the upstream life. And so now thinking of Jesus in the morning makes you feel beautifully small. I need Him for my breath. Jesus, I need you for my every breath. My heart doesn't beat without your authority. You are my only hope. And we find ourselves utterly reliant on grace. And now you can talk about being vulnerable in a room like a child who cannot feed themselves. Jesus says you have to be like that. You have to be like one who is so utterly reliant on the parent. And self-sufficiency goes out the window. And that smallness puts you in the middle of the room. It puts me in the middle of the room. And so as you think about this week, your goal is to think of yourself as the child that Jesus brings in and says, sit here in the middle of the room so these adults can look at you and see that this is the way to the kingdom. Jesus reminds you and reminds me, we are not God. We simply swim in the stream he has created for us. So the path to smaller is just in these perspectives. When we see affliction to realize it's God's gift in the long run, when we go through and we receive gifts, we realize this is God's way of humbling us and making us smaller. And as we every single day plot our way through the streams of grace, we recognize something profound and beautiful is happening. God is in control and we are not, and that is beautiful. So to become last, not only do I have to realize I'm not God, but I have to learn how to put God first. To become servant of all, I have to see gifts and grace I've been given so I can then learn to freely give them away. To become like a child before the Heavenly Father, I have to actually be willing to get radically vulnerable. Just a couple of simple ways. Not easy. The upstream journey is not easy, but it is simple. A couple of simple ways to swim against the stream of bigger. To swim against the trap of more, better, and different. To avoid the trap of despair and to begin to find refreshing humility. To begin to find the life-giving humility of a smaller life in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is uh, humbling that you have an open ear for us, that we rattling around in Northwest Ohio can approach you and can address you and you're listening. You are present with us. You are here with us. You've given us the fullness of your spirit. You've given us everything we need to take on the upstream journey, and that alone is humbling. Father, I pray for my own heart and for the hearts of our community, God, that we might find ourselves like that child in the middle of the room this week. Father, do what's necessary to bring vulnerability back into our world, to bring smallness back into our souls that we would be utterly reliant on you. We would throw off the shackles of status and self-sufficiency, and Father, we might chase you with our days. That we would take note of how the world sees us, and then we would just stop caring. Father, we care about you, your holiness and your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Thank you for loving us. In our darkest days, thank you for rescuing us from the pit of despair. Thank you for your presence in our life. We long to be small before you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Hi again. Just a reminder to let us know that you're listening by heading over to bgcovenant.org connect. If you're ready to be known, we'd love to know you. And we hope you'll join us soon, every Sunday, in person or online. Thanks for listening.